smart politics for stupid times. Welcome to the Unprecedented Podcast with John Aravosis and Cliff Schechter. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Cliff Schechter, here along with my co-host, Mr. John Aravosis. Hey there, John. Hello. 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 I'm, I'm out. Of, I don't have any more witty repartee after. I know. I'm going to come with a new shtick. Um, in any case, John's here. I'm here. And we are lucky to also have here Simon Rosenberg. Uh, Simon's a longtime Democratic strategist, worked with the DCCC, the DNC, um, on two presidential campaigns. I've known of Simon and known Simon for a long time as a really smart messaging strategist. Um, before that, he was a producer um, at ABC News, maybe on air. You can tell us or not, Simon. I don't remember that part. Um, but um, that's not what we're here to talk about anyhow. We need to talk about uh, the disaster that is the current Republican Party and um, how, we, um, how, we, how we stop creeping fascism. So thank you for being here, Simon. <laughs> it's great to be here. Thanks, guys. So, uh, Simon, big, which, fan, big fan, so it's nice to be thank here. You. Which thank presidential you. campaigns did you work on? Just curious. Uh, ancient times, Stone Age times, Dukakis and Clinton, but both of them oh, good. I joined very early and then they went on to win the, you know, win the nomination. So I've seen presidential campaigns go from being little things to very big things. Uh, and then obviously we, we won in 92 and I went on to work at the DNC after we won in the 92. Uh, 92, the memories. I was, I was actually a junior, um, no, sophomore, junior in college, college Democrats. I was in Philly. And, um, and we were working on the Clinton campaign. That was my first one. And now a word from our sponsor. Well, hey, guys. As you know, it's difficult for the planet to sustain billions of N95 masks being discarded each and every day. I don't know if they're each and every day, but billions overall. <laughs> billions and billions. Uh, it's, it's also uh, a difficult time, and nobody wants to spend a ton of money on getting new masks all the time. So guess what? Dan Castle launched Castle Grade. It's, he's the maker of the last mask you'll ever need to buy. Castle grade masks are reusable, easy to clean, and they're dishwasher safe. They're FDA registered as an N95. It doesn't directly wrap over your mouth like cloth masks, affording you the ability to breathe easier. We like that. Won't fog your glasses, and of course, the soft silicon doesn't leave marks on your face. If you'd like to grab one of these masks, folks, visit castlegrade.com and enter the discount discount code. I'm having trouble today. Sexy liberal at checkout for 10% off your first order. That's castlegrade.com and use the code sexy liberal at checkout for 10% off your, your Castle Grade reusable mask. And now back to our show. Well, I helped build the war room and construct the war room. So I've been, you know, I've been part of this rethinking about how to talk and speak and win arguments with Democrats going back a, a long way. Right. Well, that's actually the perfect segue. Tell us how <laughs> to win and speak and win arguments <laughs> in an era when, when nobody trusts anything, when Republicans have weaponized disinformation, often repeat talking points that start off at RT and other Russian institutions. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I could toss out much more, but we're in a dangerous place right now, Simon. So you can choose yeah. to begin wherever you'd like. Yeah, listen, and I think, uh, obviously, I have thoughts about all this, and I think what's important is that, you know, together, having a big conversation, we will figure this out, but we, I think the thing that unifies all of us is we know we need to do better than we're doing, right? This is a do, very do you different think time. we're going to figure it out? I mean, I'm, I'm going to be polemical here, because honestly, yeah, I sure. like for decades, for decades, we've been bemoaning the fact that Republicans lie very well, and we're really shitty at telling the truth. Not telling the truth. We're shitty at selling the truth. Uh, well, even... in that article you wrote about the economic stuff or the, the one that you were, yeah. you were interviewed for, Michael Tomaski, yeah. who's been my editor almost everywhere I've been in life. So <laughs> he was my editor at The Guardian when I was a columnist there, Daily Beast. So we've had him on here, and, he's, and he makes that point well in there with you, Simon. So maybe we start there, yeah. you know, which is – Yeah. confident that we can pull this off? Because it feels like we're shitty at messaging always. Yeah, listen, I, I, I think so a couple of things. Let's start on the on the positive side, right? Which is that we've won more votes in seven out of eight of the last presidential elections. No other political party in American history has done that. It's an incredible achievement. And for all the disappointment we may have had in some of the races, at a national level, you know, there are I've gone through and done the math on this. We've averaged over forty nine percent of the vote over the last eight elections. The Republicans are at about 45% of the vote. So, um, you know, the country doesn't see us as the same, and we're not the same. The two parties aren't the same. And I think that 
if I could sort of lay out two, I have two, two things I wanted to say today. I think we have to get better at telling the story that we want to tell, and we have to get louder and more effective at telling it, right, these two things together. I think one of the things we have to work on as a family is, you know, being far more obsessed with creating a, a stark contrast between our leadership, our success as a political party over the last generation, and their repeated historic failures. Uh, you know, there is probably no greater contrast that we've been able to make as Democrats, as, you know, with the ability, you know, we've governed well when we've been in power. They've had three consecutive failed presidencies. The country doesn't see us the same, and we have to lean into what, you know, what everyone calls this asymmetry, I think, far more aggressively. And in my presentation that Mike Tomaski refers to, this thing I'm doing now every couple of weeks online, if people want to come watch, is that it's called With Democrats, Things Get Better. And one of the core stats is that over the last 16 years of Democratic presidency and 16 years of Republican presidencies, Democrats have created 34 million jobs and Republicans have created 2 million jobs. Right. I don't know why that isn't something that everybody in America knows, right? This, debt, this is a very too, by the way, right? Debt, debt? debt as the national debt as well. Oh, all the economic measures. We right? always have three under Dems and then under Republicans, we go into massive deficit. Yeah. And it's right. it's amazing though when you I've looked at these charts before and it always blows my yeah. mind every time I see them because as you said, literally back to Reagan at least, you look and go, Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> every time a Democrat a, came in, things were amazing. Yeah, it's not a close call, right? I mean, we've been a very successful modern center-left political party in a time when there aren't many successful center-left political parties in the developed world. We've governed well. It's it's one of the reasons why this attack on us as being Marxist socialists is so absurd, because when we've actually been in power, things have gotten better in America. In fact, the exact opposite of what the Republicans are arguing has actually taken place when people like Joe Biden have been given the White House. So I, I think so. First of all, I think we have to lean into the asymmetry and the contrast and be more confident in condemning the Republicans. And I think the tension you're going to see in Biden world is this tension between narrative and storytelling and, and legislating and the need to get Republicans because of our small margins in the House, you know, in the, in the House and whatever happens in the Senate. Right. Fifty one, fifty either way. Um, there will be, you know, this need to bring Republicans along uh, on our legislation, and I think it's going to make it difficult, you know, to what I call, you know, hate the sin and love the sinner. I mean, we have to get better at condemning Republicans' arguments and stories and track record without condemning them as human beings. This is sort of what Biden talks about in the story that he tells about, you know, not questioning other people's motives. Right? He's very He feels very – this is a very central part to who he is and what we're going to be hearing about, which is he thinks that everybody's good, um, but some people have ideas that have caused them to sort of lose their way. And and we have to figure out how to do both. We've got to be able to work with Republicans while condemning their reckless – their current reckless manifestation of – of Republican politics. And and I think that we've got to figure that out. I think it's – I think it flummoxed the Obama team a little bit. I think they wanted – to bring everybody together. That's our instinct, right? Like we want people to work together. And, um, but it's going to require some, I think some tough love for a party that's become dangerous, reckless, and has done more damage to America than probably any organized force in I mean, the history of the country. So can I ask a question yeah. then? Yeah. So you're saying yeah. we should, you're, are you saying that we shouldn't just call them fuckers? I was thinking that too. I'm sorry. I'm having, I had, I, we make jokes on here too. And that I had, was the reference. I know. I, I hear you. And, and look, Jenna Mary Dillon is a good friend, and I love her. I, 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 I want to be clear. I'm not criticizing her at all yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. And and she went. She went to Tufts, where I went. So I'm, you know, I'm in the where jumbos, you know, till we die. And but I mean, look, I, I think that this is. I think it's. I I think that that language. I think we have to figure out how to have a division of labor in the family, right? That there are going to be some people, like Joe Biden, who's going to be talking as he does every day about bringing everybody together. And then there has to be another group of people who are making for years a sustained argument about the things that we're talking about now, about how, you know, you know, Democrats have been good, Republicans have been bad, right? And it's just it's just factually true, right? This is not an opinion. I mean, they've right. brought in three consecutive recessions. The deficits exploded, as John mentioned, right? You know, we've seen a loss of people having health care. 
you know, go down the list, right? We've been a constructive governing force. They haven't. And we've got to figure out how to be new, you know, nuanced enough or, or agile enough to be able to do both of these things. I think we can. I think Bill Clinton, by the way, was very good at this. I think FDR was very good at this. I think that they, you know, as rhetoricians, as people who spoke in public, they were very good at condemning the other side and smiling through the entire process, right? And so I, I do think that there's going to have to be a project set up, and whether it's at the DNC or somewhere else, that relentlessly attacks and reminds the public about the mess that Trump has left us. And, and I think that, you know, we can, we can do both. I, I also want to say that I think part of the challenge we have in this, and I, I learned this very vividly when I was at the DCCC in, 20, in the 2018 cycle, I was the chief outside strategist for the House Democrats when we flipped the House in 2018. And we had many of these discussions during the course of the election. And I was a big advocate for us going after uh, the Russia stuff more in 2017 and 2018. And I got, I lost that battle internally, perhaps it was perhaps good that I lost that battle, but the argument always was that, look, we've got a limited window to reach voters. We've got to talk about two or three things that really matter to them and make our positive case. And so I call it the tyranny of the kitchen table issues, right, where, you know, you constantly have these pollsters and the media consultants reminding everybody that, you know, we only got so many bites of the apple and we got to be careful about, you know, what we talk about. We got to be disciplined. I think that's all true, by the way. That doesn't mean that we can't talk about the, the way, the, you know, in other forums, right. you know, maybe not on our television ads, but on podcasts or on TV shows or in some kind of organized campaign to remind voters that the Republicans almost destroyed our democracy, right? I, I, don't, I don't think these things are inconsistent. And that's what I'm saying is that we have to be able to do both. And frankly, the media folks, I think, have to get better at understanding that issues can be developed and we can lean into things and change opinions about things. And let me right. give you an example, the ACA, right? The ACA was something that we ran away from in 2010 and 2012 and, um, and, and 2014. And when we finally started leaning into it in 2016 and 2018, we were able to turn that from something that was a negative 10 for Democrats into something today that's plus 10. That didn't just happen, right? That happened because we made a conscious decision to lean into something and to change people's opinion about it. And it worked. And I think we can do that with other issues too. I, I wanted to, I want to go back to one thing only cause I know, I know our listeners, but also it hit, it hit my ear too. People were freaking out when you, when you, when you sort of quoted Biden saying Republicans are people of good conscience, we simply disagree with. <laughs> and I guess, but I want to, I want to phrase it or pose a different question to you, which is, I'm not convinced that a lot of them are people of good conscience, but even if they are or aren't, I feel like that often misconstrues the issue in that gay Republicans in the past, right? They had a meeting with George Bush around the time he was uh, proposing the constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. And I remember gay Republicans saying, but he met with us privately and he let us know that he doesn't want to do that stuff, all that anti-gay stuff. He has to. In his heart, he's really, it's like the Putin thing, right? His, in his heart, he's really a good guy. And I was like, I don't freaking care if how you feel about me in your heart if you're a politician. I want you to do the right thing. You can freaking loathe me. I mean, I'd be pissed if you loathe me as a politician because I'm gay. But but as long as you're doing the right thing, I'd rather have you than the guy who likes me and shits on me every other day. It's So I'm not sure whether their character matters, ironically, to put it out there. But I do think what matters is whether the other guys see a common interest in working with you because they get what they want, you get what you want. And I, I'm not sure the other guys want to work with us. I think they've gotten a little cultish as, as yeah, we do with, the, with the, with the election stuff. Now. I, I think it gets back to what I was saying about hating the sin and loving the sinner, right? It's like, I, I think we have to stay focused on what they're saying and doing and not about who they are and what they're saying and doing is causing material harm to the country. Right. Donald Trump has left this country in tatters. And, and, and the fact that we're not really talking about this in these two Senate races in Georgia right now. I mean, let's just go through this. I tweeted on this earlier today. Right. Uh, we, he's the first president since Hoover to have had job loss on his watch. We have the highest deficit since the end of World War Two. He just let his guard down and allowed Russia to have to conduct what may be the worst 
cyber attack in American history and certainly something that's going to cause us or incredible harm. Maybe the central project. Yeah, right. And this, right. right. The central project of his presidency has been to strengthen, uh, uh, you know, the Russia's and Russian uh, Russia's ideological allies around the world. Right. You know, you can go down your, you know, with millions of people have lost health insurance. You know, we've been ravaged by COVID. Right. All these things. There's no, I mean, it's the worst track record of a president in the history of the country, probably with no near peer, right? And, you know, I think he's way beyond what Hoover did. And, and so why can't we talk about that, right? Why wasn't Biden talking about during the election that he's the first president since Hoover to have had job loss on his watch, right? Like, I don't know why that wasn't something that was commonly known and understood that, in fact, Trump's management and stewardship of the economy have been disastrous. Okay, but I mean, devil's advocate. Go ahead. No, but but devil's advocate, I'll bet you the Biden people would say, look, we looked at the polling and too many people accepted the argument that, yeah, but the economy was doing great until COVID and COVID wasn't his fault. So we actually need to do a better job on COVID as well, explaining to people how much he screwed up there. But but you can't win an argument unless you make it, right? And, And so- you know, if you look at the exit polls, the AP vote cast on the question of, of you know, who was better for the economy, Trump won that question 51 to 39. Yeah, that's crazy. And, and, and I'm an economy stupid kind of guy, right? I go back to the war room, yep. which I worked in in 92, right? The economy is always one of the two dominant issues in every election. And, yep. and we could have won the COVID argument and won the economic argument. These are not mutually exclusive, right? Well, and, I, and I think – so I'm not being critical of the Biden campaign because obviously we won the election. He's going to be president. This was – you know, and, and I'm very proud of them. They had a clear strategy. They executed on it, and we won, right? But I think, I think the, other, the point I'm trying to make is that I think one of the fundamental differences between our party and their party is because they – you know, were born in the 1950s as sort of this, you know, small minority fighting and clawing their way into power over a long period of time. They understand the concept of developing a story and narrative and, and growing it over time, right? And investing in it and telling it repeatedly and having it mature. We tend to message, which is very temporal. It feels political. It feels ephemer- it's ephemeral, right? We have to, I think, be more conscious about winning arguments over time, we have to be, we have to win the economic argument, the COVID argument, the healthcare. We don't have to message. Message to me feels weak. It feels ephemeral. And I, and I think that, um, you know, the, and I think voters view it that way, by the way. They view it as something you're saying, not something that you necessarily believe, right? And are willing to fight for. And so I, I'm, I'm a former moderate, like I'm a recovering moderate. I consider myself a new Democrat. But I think the concept of moderation is another thing that's really hurt us, um, because I'm not moderate about what needs to happen in America. I'm ambitious. I'm aggressive. I want big things to happen. And I think this concept of moderation is neutering us to some degree as a family um, in, in our in, and it sort of it, it retards or weakens our ambition as a political party. I'm an FDR kind of Democrat. I want to do big things. I want to have climate change. I want to have policies that usher in a whole new age of clean energy and conquers climate. I want to defeat COVID. I want to have an economic plan that helps everybody in America. All these things that we want to do, these aren't moderate things, right? Right. And so, you know, I I think that we've, these are all, I think that part of, you know, what I talk about in my presentation with Democrats, and I had too much coffee this morning, so bear with me. I'm I'm a little rambunctious, but the, um, what I talk about in this presentation is that we have to get more connected, I think, as modern Democrats to the greatness of this party. Uh, I think that there's never been an organized political force in human history that's done more good for more people than the Democrats. And if you go back and look at the world that we created after World War II, the fights that we helped wage against totalitarianism and sort of uh, authoritarianism on both sides, right, left and right, uh, the world, the fighting of the civil rights movement, the building of Pax Americana, the creation of the modern safety net right here in the United States, nurturing what became the internet, which we may all regret now, um, all the things that we finally created, you know, we're, you know, we're moving towards national health insurance. This is an extraordinary set of achievements, right, by any kind of organized political force over a long period of time. And I'm incredibly proud every day to be part of this. 
I don't know what the conservative analog is to that list of things that I just laid out. That they opposed all of those things. There is, right? there is not they, that thing. Yeah, I mean, right. And so, how are we losing to these guys? Right. We've been a world-altering force for good, and they've been a reaction. They've become a reactionary, you know, dangerous force. But we should be able to beat them head to head, you know, based on our track record, our vision, our values. And I think that part of it is we got to lean into this stuff more than we do. And we got to push back on the pulse a little bit. And now a word from our sponsor in the spirit of holiday sharing, you know, you put a lot of effort each year into finding the perfect gifts for special people. That's why you should send flowers from Bloomsy box. That's B L O O M S Y box for the holidays. Bloomsy box are simply better blooms. Their flowers are sustainably grown on family farms around the world. You just place an order and your flowers are handpicked and arranged at a farm unique to you. It's like sending a personal one of a kind gift. Bloomsy box actually literally is sending a personal one of a kind gift. <laughs> Bloomsy box delivers their farm fresh flowers straight to your door so they arrive weeks fresher. They provide, they pride themselves on great prices, a huge selection of artisan designed arrangements, no hidden fees, no endless upsells, and free shipping with subscription. Whether sending a single arrangement or a subscription for someone special to receive flowers each month feel confident with the quality offered by bloomsy box go to bloomsybox.com that's b-l-o-o-m-s-y box.com enter the promo code stephanie to get 15 percent off you will also receive free shipping when you purchase a subscription that's promo code stephanie at bloomsybox.com hey cliff if something hey john Hey, Cliff, if something's interfering <laughs> with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, our sponsor can help. BetterHelp. And the sponsor is BetterHelp. I guess they better help. They better help. BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, seeks to provide special... <laughs> I'm laughing they spelled it out. Like, help. It's the word help, folks. It's not hard to understand. <laughs> they literally done. spelled out H-E-L-P in the script. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, just in case you thought help was spelled P-L-E-Y, I think they need help spelling. You'll never have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. You never know whether the whether the advertisers like this or hate it. Um, you'll never have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. They assess your needs with a few questions. Oh, it's an online thing. Good. And match you with a licensed professional board-certified therapist. Start communicating in under 24 hours, connecting in a safe, private online environment. Send a message to your counselor and receive a timely response. Schedule weekly video video or phone sessions, whatever is most comfortable for you. Anything you share is confidential. If you want to try a new therapist, it's simple and free to switch. BetterHelp says they are more affordable than traditional online counseling and financial aid is available. Start living a happier life today. You'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp at betterhelp.com slash sexy liberal. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health by going to betterhelp.com slash sexy liberal and receive 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sexy liberal. And now back to our show. Can I jump in for yeah. a second? Simon? Because yeah. I think this gets to, though, all of the inequities that are out there in terms of, you know, how we communicate and the culture of our yeah. communication. So the, you, you, there was a lot that you went through there, and I'm, I'm probably going to forget a whole bunch of stuff, but uh, you know, a lot of stuff, and most of which I completely agree with you. But we, you know, we start off with, it, you know, and, and this is where I fully disclose, you know, my firm did creative for ads for Joe Biden. So obviously I'm a Biden fan for this presidential election. But you know, this isn't about Biden. It's not about actually any one Democratic leader. We seemingly, you know, and John and I have talked about this often, since Ronald Reagan had this defensive crouch, and this is the issue sometimes with older leaders in our party. And if you look at who leads us in the Senate, the House, you know, our presidential, uh, uh, our, new, our president-elect and whatever, they're older and they, they, they almost remember the lessons of Reagan too well which is to, to think that we're in the minority and we're not actually in a majority on everything and that you know we're not coming from a position of strength, which we are. And I do think that hinders us and, and hurts our culture. John and I always talk about, and I think you said this exact statement, Simon, something along these lines, which is you know Republicans look at a poll and then they decide how they're going to change the numbers. We look at it and say, ah, we can't do that. You know, um, I mean, can you imagine sort of if Democrats had looked at a poll, not to say that this was an acceptable behavior, you know, there is there are democratic rules and norms they've broken too. But let's just throw that aside for a second. We, if we looked at a poll about should we hold back Merrick Garland and not give him a nomination, right? Not give him a hearing. My guess is the polling would have been awful on that, and we would have never done it. They don't care. 
they say, how can we change the numbers to get to where we're, you know, where we start to where we want them to be? And I feel like this is a huge problem that we yep. have is that we, you just talked about why aren't we out there telling people this? Exactly. Why are we not holding press conferences, Zoom conferences, do, you know, digital media, everything we can do in the world constantly every day as we've watched these constant assaults on democracy? And I promise I'll be done in a second. We haven't responded yep. to a lot of them. We just sort of let them go by the wayside. I mean, 126 House de- you know, Republicans committed something pretty tantamount to sedition. So did 18 attorneys general who should all be disbarred. And yet, with the exception of a few, uh, uh, you know, Democrats, Bill Pascrell is out there. Thankfully, congressman from New Jersey and others. Where are we on the fact that we should be saying every what these people did is un-American? It is undemocratic, right. and we should be holding them responsible for these things constantly. We don't, which is the which is the easy segue to my last point, which is everything you're talking about is true, and yet for whatever reason. You say, you know, we should be talking about this stuff in between elections. Absolutely. You'll find no greater believers in that than John and I. But meanwhile, the right has invested gazillions of dollars in this infrastructure to do just that. And we don't do any of that. Most of the people I knew in the early 2000s, like John and I, who are really talented uh, in sharing messages, are now off working for a corporation somewhere because they couldn't make a living doing this because we don't have AEI and we don't have Heritage and we don't have Fox News. And I could go on and list and you know where I'm going with this. So yeah, that's a lot so let me, yeah, it is. Let me say a couple of things, and maybe I'll come back in a few months. And we'll, I don't even know if we're going to be able to get it all in today in this long <laughs> session. But, um, you know, and look, on the last point you made, I, you know, created the Democracy Alliance, right, back 15 years ago. I, it was my idea. It's something I helped build with Rob Stein and John Podesta and other people with the goal of doing exactly what you're talking about, which is building more institutional capacity to fight the permanent war, the information war, whatever we want to call it, right? I think that organization has been modestly successful. I think there have been groups like Center for American Progress and Media Matters that have come out of this world. And I'm very, you know, I helped bring David Brock into that world, you know, many, many years ago. And and so I, I think there's been modest success, but it's insufficient given what we're up against. Look, I was a regular commentator on Fox News for 17 years, right? I, I went on Fox three times a week during all eight years of the Obama presidency. I went on the primetime shows in the evening and the daytime shows in the afternoon. I was never paid. I went on as an unpaid yeah. person. I used to do that stuff wanna... too, by the way, back yeah. like week to go on yeah. Fox and so, friends and like, oh my right. God. So I'm, so I'm incredibly aware of the power and influence of Fox, right? And, I've, and, I, and I lived it. And I think that, I think that this is the second point I wanted to make today. What I said to you in the beginning is I wanted to talk about our, our narrative and our story and then how we tell it, right? And I do think that there is a, there may be an asymmetry that exists between the, the two parties in terms of our performance and, and who we are, but there's also a media asymmetry. They have far more capacity to take you know a meme, an argument, a message, and turn it into something salient in our day-to-day discourse. It started with talk radio, right? You guys are part of this family that studied this stuff 20 years ago and, and, yep. and began this conversation that we're having all these years later. And, you know, the beginning of this was right-wing talk radio, right? Which is still an incredibly powerful force, but they've layered on top of that, right? Fox and OAN and Trump's Twitter feed and all the things that they have. And I will tell you that I, I one of the things I did for the DCCC in twenty. 18 was I helped run uh, the first ever uh, countering disinformation operation in the major American political party. And we built, brought in tools and we did regular takedowns on Facebook and Twitter, you know, um, including we found Russian accounts, you know, tweeting into our races and stuff. Um, But one of the things that I, we became aware of during this work was that by, even by the summer of 2018, there were millions of Republicans who understood, these are citizens, these are regular people, right? Who understood that part of their job as a Republican was to uh, amplify and move social media messaging to their networks. And so it's not just that they have Fox and all these you know, paid institutions, they now have millions of amplifiers who get up every day spreading stuff through their social media networks and their email networks and everything else, amplifying the stuff that's coming out of Fox and Trump. And it's one of the reasons that Trump was so committed to Twitter because it was the signal, it could be amplified and it could be pushed, right? By all of his followers. We don't have anything like that on our side, right? We are still, I think, fundamentally coming at the world through broadcast, 
through the notion of couch potato and and the idea being that you know we are um, you know that we cons- we produce media and people consume it as opposed to we produce media a message a meme and then people move it through their networks and amplify it you know and that and that and that that's one of the things that I think we have to figure out how to do far better in the coming years which is to ask Democrats right to help us solve this problem of the that the fact that their side is much louder than we are I mean let me jump in on that because what you know, one thing Cliff and I have talked about a lot over the years has been well, over the years of the show and certainly decades of politics is how Democrats do nothing to actually foster and support those networks. Um, you know, I was big in the blogosphere back in the 2000s when we yep. were. King. That's when we met. That's yep. what I meant. Yeah. When we were king yep. on the left, king and queen, you know, taking over everything. We never got institutional support. We never got money. Um, God forbid that our, our leaders even not retweet. We didn't have tweets back then, but nobody was promoting America blog on my behalf, the way Trump retweets all the worst of the worst, you know, I mean, will Joe Biden turn around and start retweeting good things that I tweet and other people tweet? I don't know. I'm not convinced he will. Um, then there's the money question too. No one ever figured out on their side, my God, it's a, it's an industry. I mean, it literally is an industry, right? You're Dinesh D'Souza yeah. or, or Ann Coulter or any of the others. And then you decide to write a book and then they help your book get to top ranking. And then you go on Fox news and then Rush mm-hmm. Limbaugh, and then maybe you even get a radio show and it just cycles and cycles. And of course, every time you tweet the whole, everybody jumps in and retweets your tweets. And so who's the, I'll say, John, who's yeah. the crazy swift boater guy. He, he now is getting in trouble with Roger Stone over, oh, is he? Uh, what's his name? Uh, you may know but Simon. I can't think of his name, but one of the loud. loud I can't mouth. think of his name either. You know yeah. what I'm talking about. Well, at the same time, I wrote my book that uh, that was critical of John McCain. The real McCain. The real McCain. He wrote a book, his book was Ob- you know abomination, right? Obama nation. Yeah, and of course, he you know he he had a gazillion copies bought up by every right wing universe. Yeah. I barely. Yeah, ring, you were going to say that works too. What? White ring, it sounds like you yeah, were well, them too. That works too. I barely could get like in the end, my book, you know, by the grace of whatever, hit the bestseller list on Amazon because I had to hustle and market the crap out of it and do all I got no institutional support, even though this was a book laying out the arguments against McCain. And I have no complaints about where I ended up, as I don't think John does about where he ended up. We both found way other ways to keep going forward and stay in the business. Um, but I did walk away from writing books and those kinds of things because I knew that, you know, there was no support system on our side like that. Yeah, look, I, I think that I have a simple way of talking about this when I do my presentations to members of Congress and so on in Washington, which is that, you know, we have to get louder. It's just it's on some levels. It's really simple. Right. We have to get much louder and we have to be fighting the information war every day. It's 24 seven, 365. Their whole machinery operates every single day. We still have this kind of broadcast campaign mindset where we really engage in messaging for two to three months at the end yep. of the year, you know, and we're not, you know, we're not up and operating the rest of the, the time. And, and I think that, you know, particularly given, you know, if you look at media consumption habits in the United States, I mean, television is now a rapidly melting ice cube. Not, it used to be a slowly melting ice cube. And, you know, we're moving into this far more complicated uh, you know, media environment that's, and that we you know one of the things that you guys should want to, you know, that I think is worthy of you looking at is that Jared Kushner did an interview with Politico sometime late summer where he said, we don't need as much paid advertising because we're producing so much organic content, you know, through Trump TV and Trump's Twitter feed and the White House videos mm-hmm. and everything else that we're reaching everybody we need to reach without all the paid media. Oh, remember, we I mean, frankly, Simon, that, you, you, you yeah, may remember yeah. this number. I'll ask you because I can't remember what the number was. And, and I, you know, I may be getting it wrong. But there was a study that went out that showed that on average, Fox News was adding, adding something like four or five points to Republican campaigns, which, of course, is huge. And you know, it's just because, like, you know, they can take Benghazi or Hunter Biden and make it a thing just by deciding they're going to repeat it on all their shows all day, all day long. And yeah, and, and, what, and what happens, can I tell you, I mean, there's somebody, yeah, I, look, my, in my role in the family, right, we all play different roles, is that I've been fortunate enough to be working with House and Senate folks now for 25 years, right? I've worked in, and I've been inside the guts of the establishment for all of this time. 
And, um, you know, and I do presentations. I work at the DCCC. I do presentations to members of Congress. I've been having this conversation, right, for a generation. And what, you know, and where it began in 1996, the first time I started raising money and getting people elected to the House, was that I would interview a candidate and they would, in these swing districts, right, where we don't have a lot of Democratic infrastructure in many of these districts and, and Democratic media, right? And it would be incredible to me to listen to them talk about the things that were on voters' minds in their races. And I realized that the power of talk radio was so incredible that the impact that right-wing talk radio was having on, um, you know, on these swing districts that we were starting from this deficit, this four to five point deficit of, uh, you know, that every time. And I think that 25 years later, right, it's possible that it's actually worse than it was, you know, because of the combination of Fox News and OAN, but also that now that they have millions of amplifiers who are now, you know, and we're never going to be able to stop that. I mean, this is the fundamental difference between traditional media and the new media, which is that you have to view people as, as our, you know, I used to talk about it when I ran for chairman of the party 15 years ago, that we have to view our supporters, not as donors to the cause, but partners in the fight, right? We have to rethink that we view Democrats as donors. They give us money to do the work. We have to view this as a community of three to 4 million people going to work every day, um, you know, winning in the information war. When we think of the war room, which in 1992 was, you know, 25 people sitting in a room with Carville and Stephanopoulos, the war room now has to be three to 4 million people, um, you know, fighting it out every day, right? And, and, and if we, I don't know how else this can happen, right? And, um, and so, you know, that's part of the, the struggle that we're going to have going forward. Definitely true. We just have to, I mean, again, well, you, I mean, with you starting the, the, you know, your role in the Democracy Alliance and some of these other groups, maybe, um, you know, maybe you'll have some ears about funding <laughs> various well, things me, in our side, you know. Can I, can I make two concrete suggestions based on what we're talking about today that I think Absolutely. is really, there, that are things that are doable, right? So first is that, we have to implore the, the elected leaders of our family to start understanding that their communications obligations are daily, right? They have to use the power of their offices uh, and the official side, not the political side. Can I ask side, quickly, the Simon, yeah. just to let yeah. we make that clear to our listeners and us, when you say we have to implore, how? In other words, via social media, should we be calling them? Is it insiders like the three of us? trying to meet with them and, and convince them, you know, like it's, how it's, a, we... it's, it's what you're doing now is that we have to have this conversation. And we have to first identify the fact that there's a deficit and that, and that our elected leaders have to step up. I think the single most important thing that could happen in the next two years would be every elected official who's a Democrat starting to produce two to three, you know, direct to camera videos every week from their official office talking about and releasing them building larger social media followers. It, I, we need them to get into the information war with us, right? It's not something that we do for them, right? We have to do this together. And one of the things that I've done in my presentations to members of Congress is I said, do you have 20 to 25 volunteers back in your district who are amplifying your tweets and who are sending them out or monitoring what people are doing and attacking you where you can direct them and communicate with them sort of it's like digital organizing right can you do you have a, a team that can, right. it can be 20 people it doesn't have to be thousands of people who are your lieutenants in the information war every day i'm willing to bet how many members of congress have that zero right and right. maybe aoc does right maybe some you know some of the squad who are ahead of everybody on this stuff right um but this has to become something that everybody feels responsibility for every day. And we have to stop believing that someone else is going to solve this for us. We have to do our part. And that gets me to the second thing that I think is, is, do, is, is doable, is the DNC has to reimagine the war room to become something that has three to four million people in it every day who are fighting it out. And that's going to give a lot of people, your listeners, something to do. There can be a daily message where they learn an issue and they engage it in their networks, right? This is easy stuff to do, right? But we have to do it, and we have to treat our supporters and people who are passionate partisans with respect, right? And view them not as people who have a checkbook, but as 
who are patriots who want to go fight alongside with us, right? I think we can reimagine our politics around that. And I think the third thing that I'm going to take from you is that I'm going to try to work with the Biden world to figure out how to engage this disparate, unorganized community of, of folks like you and others. You know, I brought Marcos, just so you guys know, in 2009, I got Marcos invited to the White House. He was in Washington and he called me and said, you know, I'm, I'm around. I said, have you ever been to the White House, Marcos? And he said, no. And I said, I said, do you want to go in and get a tour? And I arranged it. And he didn't even think, right? He came to Washington. He didn't even think that that's a place that he could have gone. Because to your point, there wasn't any kind of connective tissue, even between Marcos at that time. And John right? makes that point a lot about the lack of outreach, right? Yeah, John, and they did. Yeah, and I tried unsuccessfully to create some kind of sustained, you know, engagement. And I think that we have to help the Biden world really understand that, you know, they're going to be outmatched. They're not going to have $100 million of television ads up every two weeks like they've had, you know, over the last, you know, three or four months of the election. How are they going to compete against Fox? I mean, even watching this Tucker Carlson nightly dismemberment of Joe Biden, Right. You know, it's just so gross and disgusting, but it's just what he's doing is that he's just he's working out. Right. Like he's practicing how he's going to go dissect and pull apart the Biden administration every day. And, and how how we need to figure out how the Biden campaign, the Biden world is going to have to, uh, re, I think, rethink the way they do communication. Right. And if they think they're going to win it by reinstalling the daily press briefing and having Jen Psaki, who's very capable and an amazing person, right? She can't compete against Tucker Carlson. Right. And, and, you know, and so, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of work to do. And I think there's an urgency to this, you know, that's coming because if we want to pass our agenda and not get kneecap in the meet in the midterm elections, again, for the third consecutive democratic presidency, you know, we are going to have to fight and get much louder in the coming months than we are now. But, you know, one thing that already has been worrying me, Simon, and it worried me during the campaign is I feel like it's a little bit of a, well, it depends. I want to say a recap of 2009, but possibly worse. Um, in 2008, the Obama, I remember reaching out to the Obama people early on during the campaign because I'm from Illinois, really liked the guy, wanted to help them, whether professionally or, or you know, meaning higher or just on the side. I'm a talking head. I like you guys. Zero communication, zero. Um, then once the DNC kicked in and people knocked the DNC, but once the DNC kicked in, the DNC contact, who was Jesse Lee, was fabulous. And Jesse and I worked together great. You know, they'd slip me stuff. I slipped them stuff. It was great. I mean, we worked together as a you know one entity, right? Well, you get to this this year and again, trying to reach out to the Biden people, you just don't hear back. Um, reaching out on specific things coming up. There was, you know, that that survey claiming that Kamala Harris or Kamala, I always pronounce it Midwest, Kamala Harris was the most liberal member of Congress. And I reached out to them, was like, guys, we need help pushing back on this. Could you have anything responding to it? Radio silence. Every time I reached out to the campaign, it was radio silence. Now that things are already happening, you know, Neera Tandon, huge fan of Neera Tandon. We've had her on the show repeatedly. Everyone's yeah, being of Neera on the left. No one. I tried to get information to push back. No one was giving us a goddamn thing. And not only that, but it's hard to push, like Pete Buttigieg, it's hard to push back when you don't know what they do and don't want you to say. Maybe they don't want right. us to talk about Nira's tweets. Maybe they don't want us pushing back on, which I think it's a bullshit allegation of the, you know, Pete, Pete Buttigieg is bad on race. Bullshit, he's bad on race. But but as soon as I enter that discussion, am I fueling the discussion they don't want? Who the fuck knows because there's zero outreach again and it drives me nuts because again on on the right that that son of a bitch is retweeting the worst of the worst on the right trump yeah, yeah. and look, they campaign to give us talking points to help them they um there's a consciousness and obama right, did that and it was side. bad yeah there was a, there's a consciousness on their side of helping their people in their family get louder, right? They they view this, they come at this as the minority, right? Is that they have a minority mindset. They have to claw that the media is against them. The democratic industrial media complex, right, is against them. So they have to invest oh, and build the their right own the the right. The right oh, is not this yeah. yeah no no I mean and so they have this consciousness 
uh, needing to help each other get louder, right? That there is a camaraderie around this. We don't have that at all, right, on, on our side. And I, and I think that, you know, it's funny, you just mentioned Jesse. I mean, Jesse's a dear friend of mine. I've worked, he's a hero in, this, in our family, right? Yeah. And I need to, I'm going to reach out to Jesse, and you should too. You should Oh, I'm friends with Jesse. Jesse. Yeah, I I know you should, but you should talk to him about what do we do now? Is he going to go in? Right, he went into the Obama administration. Probably not. Yeah, and right, and he was. But I mean, the thing is, he can help the Biden world build this kind of connective tissue. With that's a really good point too. They don't. I mean, Obama and Obama's people were terrible once the administration started. We, you know, the blogs and everybody, we still had power back then. We were begging them for information about the ACA, about the stimulus, et cetera. Nothing, nothing. And, and as you said, the problem is it's also a matter of now when we have the big fights, they've already made clear going after, you know, Dr. Biden, uh, going after the campaign person who used the word fucker when, you know, they're 10 times going after Nira for her mean tweets. I mean, God, <laughs> I, you know, know, after, after this, yeah. that, that, that they even have the gall to yeah. say that is, but, 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 but by not working with all of us, you also don't have that relationship established when the shit hits the fan and you need help. Who are they going to turn to? They don't have, they don't even have a list of us to even talk to. And they've never talked to us anyway. Right. It's, it's about just, getting loud. They have to get loud. And the, and by getting loud, you know, it's like a chorus, right? You need everyone singing as loudly as they can. They can be the conductors of the, you know, they can be the person conducting the chorus. I'm not a musical yeah. person, so I don't know the right word, but they should be the conductor of the orchestra, but they got to let every, you know, everyone's got to play the inst- their instrument and do their part. And, you know, part of the reason that I, you know, even though I was a more establishment Democrat, reasons I embraced the blogs and I wrote the forward to Marcos's book, you know, all those years ago was that, and what I wrote in Marcos's book was that Marcos and I don't agree on virtually any issue. Really? However, I love it. I love him. Right. I didn't agree with him on the Iraq war. I mean, there were a whole series of things, but I said, I love him and I respect him. And I and so I'm doing everything I can to help him because we are all playing different positions on the same team. Right. And I, and I think that sentiment that, you know, I don't agree with AOC, but I just recently was quoted in Politico praising her for her her use of social media and everything else. It's part of the reason I praised Dean and Trippy. I didn't support Dean and Trippy back in 2004, but my God, were they reinventing our politics in a way that was really powerful and sustaining, right? It's obviously, and so we can, we have to be better about going beyond the issue and ideological differences that exist in our family and realizing that we all have to help each other get louder and, and uh, against this sort of common enemy that has not just become an opponent to us, but something that's become reckless and dangerous. There is a, there's an urgency for us to work through these things to build a bigger and more powerful team, right? And I think some of this has to do with sort of the arrogance of Washington people. Um, and, and, but I think that, you know, I think the Biden people are going to realize very, very soon that they need to, that they're not going to be able to run this, you know, run the White House. uh, They're going to have to reinvent the communications operation of the White House in order to to prevail. And that they're going to have to compel. And, you know, Chris Murphy, I'll tell you somebody you may want to have on the air to talk about all this stuff. Chris Murphy, the senator from Connecticut, who I admire. He's phenomenal. And he said something the other day in his tweets about how he was going after Trump uh, on on the Russia stuff. And he said, and in his, it was either in Greg Sargent's interview with him or in his tweets, he said, you know, look, we there's a division of labor. He said, not everyone has to work on this, but I'm going to work on this. And he said, it doesn't mean that other people have to work on this. But let me let me leave you with one, you know, yep. before we end, just another way to think about this. I, my wife and I watched, uh, you know, we've all sort of exhausted Netflix and and HBO in the last, you know, during the quarantine yep. or, or COVID. But my wife and I watched The Queen's Gambit the other day, and um, which I strongly recommend to everybody. And it's an amazing uh, show about a female chess player. And I was a chess prodigy as a young guy, right? I played competitively uh, for years, you know, like in second grade, right? Like as a really young person. And I realized from watching this show that I view the world as a chess player, meaning that it's all about strategy. It's all about thinking ahead to your next four, five, six moves and how are you going to get from here to there. And I think going back to something you said earlier, John, 
is that I think that where we fall sometimes is that, you know, messaging, as I was saying earlier, is ephemeral. You can't, you know, like what Pascal did was great, but if he's going to do it, he's got to stick with it for two to three months. He can't jump in for a day or two, make a point, get a press release, get a press hit, and then walk away. It doesn't work. It's not lasting. Right. We have to move the chess. We have to play chess here. We've got to, if you're going to win the game, you've got to keep playing all the way to the end. I'll say quickly, think, Simon, I'll yeah. let you keep talking, yeah. but I think I mentioned Pascal, and maybe that makes the point in and of, in and of itself is, I don't know, he's, you know, I've seen him doing it for a few weeks now, and I don't know if it'll continue forever. But, but even in and of itself, the fact that he's one of the only ones doing it says something. Right. Right. And, it, and those, those, no, no, but you're exactly right. I mean, those kinds of endeavors just simply won't work, right? Because they have to be to your, as you said earlier, we, if, or I, I think it, it was, it was uh, Cliff who said that, you know, we have to, if we're going to change people's minds, it has to be a sustained argument over a long period of time. And there has to be a strategy using all the modern tools that we have and how to communicate to engage in things over a long period of time. That's what happened with the ACA, right? And we should have leaned into the ACA in 2010 and 2012. We didn't. We, I think it cost us. I think we paid a price. Absolutely. We didn't because if you're gonna, the positives of it at all. Right. Because if you're going to pass legislation and then run away from it, you should be punished. You know, because if it was that important, then you should be, you're obligated to go talk to the American people about why you just spent all this time getting something through, right? And that, that was a, that was a failure of, that speaks to this core disconnect between messaging, governing, reality, whatever you want to call it, which is that we have to stop believing sometimes, I think, that we have the degree of control over people's um, thinking about things that, that media consultants and pollsters think that we have. And that, and that, you know, particularly because the other side is injecting poison and disinformation and bullshit, you know, as you've been, we, we can say that on this podcast, right? Sure you know, uh, uh, yeah, um, you know, into the, into the information environment. And so I, I, I think that the, the final thing I'll, to summarize what I'm saying here is that, A, we have to go on offense. You know, what I think has been a misinterpretation of the war room is that we created a culture around rapid response. I was in the war room. The war room wasn't only about responding. It was about winning arguments over time. So first, we got to go on offense. We have to be, I think, better at telling our story of the greatness of the Democratic Party and the things that we've done. Um, we have to be more proud of our collective enterprise. And I think we have to get much louder in how we tell it. And, and I think, you know, that's my, you know, if I could summarize my recommendation, that's, you know, those are the three things I think we need to do. And I think they're all achievable. I think these are achievable things. I don't think these are pie in the sky, you know, um, you know, crazy things. I think getting simply, right, imagine Nancy Pelosi in January said, I'm going to start rating all of you each week based on how many people you reach on your social media feed, you know, as a member of Congress. And people, you know, you right now, you get in line by how much money you raise for the DCCC, but you're also going to be rated now on how many people you reach on your social media feed every week, right? Imagine yep. that. Or how many it, videos imagine, you or how many, right. you know, whatever. whatever the metrics are, right? Imagine if we started grading, you know, Democrats, and there started becoming a consciousness of this, that, you know, you have to use the data that you have to enter the day-to-day -day information war and sending out a press release to reporters who never even open it or read it doesn't count, right? It's, you know, how, how are you engaging citizens in the direct debate every day? I, I have, there's a member of Congress I'm very close to who a few years ago, um, you know, was being challenged in a primary. And I said, the very first thing you should do is you need to start making at least a weekly video. You direct a camera, you about an issue that you care about and start connecting with people on an emotional level about something that you have passion about and to demonstrate that you're a human being that the, your work, the, there's actual work you're doing, that they can touch you and connect with you. And he started doing this. And he told me two weeks later, he said, you know, my daughter who's 19, her friends now know what I do for a living, right? And he's like, it had a dramatic immediate impact, right? By just making yep. these simple videos where he was just, you know, one of the things we did in the DCCC in 2018 is we really pushed these organic two to three minute, you know, bio, you know, videos that were done by many of our, 
candidates who are very powerful stories to tell about their lives. None of those videos ever showed up on television, right? They were not videos made for TV. They were made for the web. And they were immensely powerful media, right? I mean, I still think back at Mikey Sherrill's original video and, you know, so many of these, uh, Jason Crow had an incredible video about his, you know, military service and so on. We produced phenomenal media in 2018, none of which ended up on television, right? right. And, and I think it's one of the reasons we did so well. I mean, we did better with young people in the 2018 election than Obama did in 2008. And we and with both 18 to 29 year olds and 18 to 44 year olds, it was the best performance. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons why is that we leaned so heavily into organic content as a strategy that we were speaking to young people in, in ways that were familiar to, to them and inspiring. Right? These were we went we. Last thing I'll say in this, I'm babbling here, but I'm part of the strategy. You got to be careful. You're going to miss your uh, your cutoff. Yeah, yeah, no. I know, I know, but uh, we all have to go. But anyway, guys, thank you. Thanks for letting no, me. No, it's awesome. Uh, I mean, battle on here. And, no, and let me just say is, thank you is, for what you're doing. You know what, what you're doing and the fight that you're waging what every you day. What is incredibly and, important, Simon. Thank you for being here. This is a lot of what John and I talk about, and our listeners need to hear. So thank you. We will definitely yeah. have you back. Well, and I next time I won't drink as much coffee. I think before I get on, but I, I'm grateful for the opportunity and keep up the fight, guys. Thanks so much, man. Thanks. Alrighty. Um, we're gonna. I'm okay. Gonna... Thanks, gentlemen. Oh, you're still okay. Take care. Thank you, Simon. Okay. Okay. Let me. Anyway, I just want to say bye and thank you, and let me get off here. Take care. Yep, no problem. Right. Bye. There you go. That's funny. It was like he's like the vampire. He came back. I know. I thought he was going. <laughs> um, I'm reading. Like, we're gonna have to wrap up, but I was just reading something on Twitter. Um, Jimmy Dore, D O R E. Yeah, he's gone after me before. He's crazy. Well, he's a Bernie type, apparently, like a super he's not, Bernie. He's, he's not even a Bernie type. He's uh, he's like a, he attacked Bernie, I think, this time. He was he's a Tulsi slash Syria um, uh, truther. He was, he was a Young Turks guy and then left. He just kept area. going further and further off into well, the he, he Today is going after not today. This is yeah, today. Today he's going after Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, there you go. Because she voted for the CARES Act. You know, right. Which, which, right nobody's a, he's he, he's a lesser well-known Greenwald. Nobody is ever as pure as him. Nobody's ever he spent a whole show, John. He did a whole show because I criticized him on uh, he was attacking somebody. I think actually it was Randy Weingarten. He said some really nasty things, and I basically pointed out how she's achieved she achieved more in one year than he'll achieve in his miserable life. And then he spent one of his whole stupid shows. I I, I only saw a brief clip of it online. I don't know, if, but yeah, like talking about me, the establishment oh, chill, and oh, I'm man. horrible, and blah blah blah. It was oh, cool. Anyway, all right, we're gonna go. Uh, it's Thursday, so you know. Um, Let's see about next week. It's it's Christmas week. Christmas is Thursday, right. maybe. So we may only do one next week, guys. Because oh, well, no, we're not. I don't think we're doing two. We well, let's see. Yeah, we can't. I mean, I don't think I. My kids are going to be home. It's going to be Christmas difficult. It's very big in the Schechter household. It is actually. You guys I, married, are- I married a Presbyterian man. What do you want from me? Good for your kids. <laughs> I know they get both. Missing the free gift holiday is a big deal. I must say. Yeah, I would. They get, they get all the free gifts. I would they're have been good. pissed growing up. I would have been like, I should imagine it's got to be weird for Jewish families. Like, how do you explain to the kids why they're not getting free gifts? I know. It's tough right? when all their friends are. Right. And you, and you get a dreidel. All right. Well, we got to go, guys, because we both have deadlines today. We do. Uh, all right. Um, and we'll talk to you. She what time had to say for a while, because that's actually really important stuff. Yeah. We're going to get out no, of No, he's lot. great. He's great. I haven't talked to him in a long time. That's wonderful. Okay, guys, let's. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Take care. And now a word from our sponsor. Well, John, the holiday season is the one time of year we all get to indulge in our favorite traditions and feel like a kid again. Uh I know me. No matter what you celebrate, everybody shares in the spirit of giving, whether it's giving gifts to our favorite people or spreading cheer to everybody around you. This year, give yourself and the ones you love an opportunity to look as young as the season makes you feel with Plexiderm. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that gives your appearance the right kind of changes. It visibly reduces wrinkles, fine lines, and even under-eye bags in minutes. Plexiderm even works on laugh lines, number 11s, and crow's feet. Take up to 10 years off your appearance in less than 10 minutes. The results will last for hours so you can relax, surrounded by your loved ones, knowing you're always looking your best. Even better, Plexiderm doesn't involve any visits to a surgeon, and it's cheaper than a round of hot cocos for you and your loved ones. You can try... (laughs) You doubt that, John? 
Um, I'm just excited about it being cheaper than hot cocoa. Uh, me too. That's good stuff. Um, you can try a six application trial pack for just $14.95 with free shipping when you visit buyplex.com backslash sexy liberal or call 800-685-1292 and say the code sexy liberal. This order also comes with free shipping and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Make those wrinkles, lines, and under eye bags disappear with Plexider. Visit buyplx.com backslash sexy liberal or call 800 685 1292 and say the code sexy liberal at checkout. 